Welcome to another episode of the CC Podcast Conversations, where inspiring Christians share their faith-filled stories. Please take a moment to subscribe to this podcast, leave a five-star rating, and write a review. This helps push our content to a broader audience. Are you new to listening? Check out our other podcasts. First, the CC Podcast Daily Dose Devotions, where we're walking through the Bible, focusing on short clips of Scripture. Second is the CC Broadcast, where our weekly radio programming is archived. These podcasts are available wherever you're listening or at christiancrusaders.org. Okay, let's get started with today's episode. Here's our host, Matt Reister, the Executive Director of Christian Crusaders. Hey, Andrew, how are you doing today? Great, Matt. How are you? Good. We've got a great interview with Dave Anderson. Got an amazing story about surviving a plane crash in 1993 that you're not going to believe. I mean, you believe it now. Uh, yeah, it. I believe it now. Yeah, and I watched a little YouTube video about it too. I haven't yet. Is yeah, it it's, good? Yeah, it's, it's crazy. It's crazy. It's it's older. It's a, it's an older clip, but it checks out. Uh, it It's, yeah, the, it matches up. I mean, the, the hearing him tell the story was actually better. I mean, just because to hear the, the from a... From a first-person point of view, who was there and went through it, uh, everybody listening is just going to be really blessed to, to be able to hear this story and hear how, how I mean, God saved them. I mean, it was not, they shouldn't have been alive, you know, and, and to hear it. I think that he said really the cool. guy that was in the water, this is the Bering Sea. Mm-hmm. This is between Alaska and Russia. Yep. And 41-degree uh, water, is that what he said? Yeah, 41, 44, something. So cold. And like you should be dead after 25 minutes or something? Yeah, yeah. And they, the, the guy who was in the water the longest was 70 minutes, right? Yeah, yeah. And uh, uh, so that's not the only thing that we talked about. Dave does a bunch of other really cool ministry stuff. He's got an uh, incredible ministry background. In fact, I know that he's going to send this out to the list of people that are connected to his ministries. And so we want to welcome you, who are definitely probably new listeners to the CC Podcast. we got a lot of great other interviews that you should check out. We've got a daily Bible overview, and we've got a weekly broadcast. So get on our website, you new listeners. Welcome to the group, ChristianCrusaders.org. Uh, what else struck you about that whole story? Well, one thing that really resonated with me, the ministry that he did, and, and the name escapes me right now, but the ministry that he does for, for pastors uh, down in Arizona, um, you know, my dad having gone through cancer while he was a pastor, um, he went to the the other camp that, that actually Dave re- referenced, the one in Colorado. Oh, he went there. My, my mom and dad went there. Wow. Uh, and and just it was a huge blessing for them. I I, I talked to my mom about it uh, last night actually. And That's cool. Yeah, and and so um, you know obviously his camp just similar similar kind of thing helping out pastors who need it and a retreat something canyon yeah. retreat or something you'll yep. hear it in the in the interview. And and really that that really touched me because um, yeah it it is something that that a lot of people. Um, a lot of people look at pastors on a, uh, you know, and think, okay, they just get up and, and you know, give a sermon, and maybe they think about, you know, the effort went into this sermon. I think a lot of people just think pastors get up there and kind of wing it, um, and and some some do, yeah, well, yeah, there's some do, but <laughs> but but the amount, um, you know, pastors are real people, and and the amount of uh, of support and effort that they need because uh, the enemy attacks them harder than a lot of other people. Amen. And, um, you know, to do some of those things he mentioned, like, um, you know, I remember times when, when people would come and pray with my dad before he would do a sermon or a service or, um, you know, the pastor of the church that I attend, same thing. I've, I've gone and prayed with him before and, and it means a lot. It, 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 it works. It helps. It works. It, yeah. 
Uh, so just particularly specifically, uh, you know, him with that ministry, that was really cool. But, but the, the, some of his, uh, ideas that he mentioned and the bigger idea of supporting your pastors, um, really, really resonates with me as, as a pastor's kid. That's great stuff. I hadn't thought about it through that lens, but that totally makes sense with you. Uh, he also did some really cutting-edge, innovative ministry on the heels of the Jesus movement, the kind of hippies coming to Christ movement that happened yeah. in the late 60s and early 70s. Worked with Bill Bright, who founded Campus Crusade for Christ, yep. had Billy Graham in to speak, and uh, so yeah. Dave Anderson. Yeah, a lot of work with the Lutheran Youth in, the youth Encounter. I did one of those trips when I was in high school. I don't know about you, but... I went down to New Orleans when I was uh, when I was in high school and through through LYE and so that a lasting legacy there too. Uh, a lot of ways that he's uh, directly or indirectly indirectly touched a lot of lives, and I think people listening are going to re- really enjoy hearing that. We got into some uh, doctrinal issues and some church issues as well. I think that people will find that interesting. I might have been a little bit too self disclosing. <laughs> When I explained why I'm not a pastor, <laughs> I don't care about people that much, which is kind of tongue-in-cheek and kind of true. <laughs> but, That's okay. But, uh, hey, you're going to love this interview, and thanks to Dave Anderson for coming in and talking to us, and Roger Walk, his musical partner and traveling buddy. It's great to meet those guys as they were on their way through Iowa from Arizona. And uh, let us know what you think of this. You can always reach out to us at info at christiancrusaders.org or call our office, 319-277-0924. And obviously, we're donor-funded, so we'd love to have your support, which you can do that online or in person. And there's details about that on the end of the podcast. So thanks for tuning in, and have a good day. Thanks for joining us today. I have got an exciting interview with Dave Anderson. Dave, we have just only met, actually we met years ago, but we (laughs) haven't had a chance to talk the way we have just now. And uh, you'll hear more about this, but Dave is on his way through town. I was tipped off to him being here. He's got an amazing story about an airplane crash that he lived through, but we're going to talk about a bunch of other stuff before we get to that. So Dave, what are you doing in Iowa? Uh, for 45 years, I've been doing gospel concerts in basically Lutheran churches. Once in a while, we stray to other denominations. Um, but basically, uh, we're doing music ministry in Lutheran churches, and we're here in Iowa for a week. Started in Ankeny last weekend and concludes this coming weekend in Iowa City and Cedar Rapids. My so ho- my home is in Phoenix. So Monday we'll fly home to Phoenix, and then uh, the next tour is in Arizona. And the next tour in in November is in Texas, where you and I met at a conference last month. We were in northern Minnesota and Alaska. So we're doing this. Uh, a friend of mine and I, a guy that I've known for fifty years, and kind of a scary thought, Matt. If you add up the, his years and mine. We have a hundred years experience in music ministry because we met back in the day of the Jesus movement in Talk Southern about California. What, what is the Jesus movement for people who don't know? Well, that was the last great spiritual awakening in America or actually in the world. Um, tens of thousands of young people and young adults especially came to faith and back to faith. And it was it was an amazing time in the 70s, late 60s and 70s. And it was 
if there was one person who became a pivotal person in that movement, it was Chuck Smith at Calvary Chapel. In California. In California, Costa Mesa, California. And what attracted the world's press, and I mean the world's press, was the beach baptisms, where they where they would baptize 300 and 500 people at one time in the beach, on Huntington Beach or Manhattan Beach or one of the beaches in wow. Orange County. And, and it was in the days, you know, following sort of the hippie movement, and a lot of young people... Like one young man told me, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. Hmm. They had come to faith, and there were some fabulous musicians that became part of that movement, a group called Love Song. And, uh, and, and then while that was happening in Orange County, a Presbyterian church in Hollywood, Hollywood Presbyterian Church, in fact, on Gower Street in Hollywood, started the first Christian coffee house. It was called the Salt Company. Huh. And... So the Jesus movement kind of started mostly in Orange County, but some in Hollywood, actually. What kind of a theological distinctive or direction did it take, or did they all scatter into a bunch of different denominations and theological strands? They did. That's interesting. Um, I happen to have been the director of a ministry called Lutheran Youth Alive, and I've told thousands of people I was the director of the Lutheran version of the Jesus movement because we had... 30,000 teenagers come to 18 youth congresses in five years. And, um, and, but, and I don't know, frankly, whether the Jesus movement took hold in Methodism and the Presbyterian Church. I don't know that. I just know that Calvary Chapel grew into a denomination. Mm-hmm. The Vineyard, which was also started at the same time, grew mm-hmm. into a denomination that today there are Calvary Chapel churches all over the world and mm-hmm. vineyard churches all over the world. Um, evangelical, Christ-centered, give your life to Jesus Christ, not, not necessarily connected to the charismatic movement, but, but not opposed to it either. Yep. So, um, but it was interesting that the Jesus movement hit the press. It was front page on Time and Newsweek. And, what uh, year is this now? Around? Oh, 69, 70, 71, 72. So right during the hippie time. Yep. And I, I remember going to Calvary Chapel with a busload of kids from my Lutheran church that I, where I was youth director. Mm-hmm. And there were two television crews there, one from like Spain and one from Italy or something like Germany or something, who, were, who had been sent over to America to 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 record this emerging wow. thing that's happening. And of course, secular people, they probably blew their minds that people were coming to faith and embracing Christ and putting down their drugs life, their, and their, their drugs sex. and their that's right. Exactly. So were you a hippie? No. No? No, I'm a dyed-in-the-wool Lutheran preacher's kid that uh, has been in lay ministry for 55 years. And uh, no, but I I was rubbing shoulders with a lot of hippies. And I started, would you believe, in the middle of all this, I started the first Lutheran-sponsored drug rehabilitation center anywhere in the world. It was called Renewal House in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. That was another whole story. I actually lived there for, I don't know, six months or something like that. And 
I was rubbing shoulders with some very interesting people. <laughs> we would we had a guy gave us a bus. And it you gotta have a bus if you're hippies, right? Yeah, yeah. And and we painted that bus blue. We called it the big blue bus. And we'd go down Sunset Boulevard and Hollywood Boulevard and and if we had beds available, we would pick up in the bus. Beds in the bus? No, no. No, at back at the renewal center at this big mansion that we okay. were leasing. But we'd pick up bummed out young people who needed a place to sleep and mm. uh, needed some food. And so we, I don't know how many people we handled on a given night, but probably 15 or 20 people. But sometimes we would actually drive that bus and we'd see somebody with their thumb out and we'd say, how would you like a place to stay tonight? And sometimes they were a little bit uh, stoned. Yeah. <laughs> and so we, and, and, and there were young people. i tell you, one time I was going to be speaking someplace and I was going to get on an airplane and I, a girl who had been prayed for from a drug addiction who should have been by any other standard uh, in the midst of a lot of pain coming off of drugs had been miraculously healed. Hmm. And I remember her standing with an iron, ironing a shirt of mine. And she was just calm as anything. And uh, I mean, there were, there were some incredible healings that took place at that renewal house. Wow. It was, it was an interesting time. That's amazing. So when we were just in the hallway, you were talking about, uh, you started a ministry called Lutheran Youth Encounter. I know I several people who went through that. Uh, one of them, you, you remember Enrique Ochoa. No. <laughs> no? There were a lot of people that... So he, he was a youth ministry director here who went through LYE. I thought you would have known Is that him. right? You mentioned, I think we talked about, you knew Dave Urich? Oh, yes. Dave Urich was the youth director here for a while. And he was. I think, was he ever part... He might have been part of LYE He was some point. vice president, actually, after I left. Yep. Um, so talk about uh, Lutheran Youth Encounter. And then I think that kind of segues into you working with Bill Bright to get the four spiritual laws translated into different languages. Yeah, I did. I want to I tell you something. Um, I'm now, and I, don't get, I won't get into the weeds and the details, but I'm the president of a ministry that provides counseling retreats for burned-out church workers. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. I know. But sometimes people ask me, you know, why did you start this ministry? Well, I've got a situation with my dad who had some people in a little congregation in, in, in South Dakota that today you call clergy killers. There's a mm-hmm. book written about them, a book written by that title, actually, mm-hmm. called Clergy Killers. And my dad fell apart under the pressure of a couple of people in a church. But then I had my own experience, and I was the founder of Lutheran Youth Encounter and youth congresses and international teams and college teams going out from colleges all over the Midwest. But I had my own falling apart. I didn't have a moral figure, but I hit an emotional brick wall. Would you call it like a mental breakdown or a... Kind of. In fact, later on, when I told a psychologist about that time in my life, one of the psychologists, a Christian counselor, said to me, Dave, you were you were really close to the edge. Hmm. And what happened was, and this you're going to be blessed and your listeners are going to be blessed. 
in the in the spring of 1968, I resigned as the head of Lutheran Youth Encounter, effective September 1st. That summer, I had 13 gospel teams traveling all over the place. In the middle of the summer, maybe maybe July, I called a church in Van Nuys, California. What's interesting about that is that I didn't know where Van Nuys was, and I did not know the name of the pastor. I had somebody had told me about Central Lutheran Church in Van Nuys, California, and I, I don't know who that was. So on a Monday morning, I picked up the phone, and I called up, and a lady answered the phone, and I said, uh, is your pastor in? And she said, yes. I said, what's his name? And she gave me his name, one of these good Norwegian names, Ernie Jelton. Well, <laughs> Yelton. It, it'd be Yelton. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and he came on the line. And I said, Pastor Jelton, my name is Dave Anderson. I'm calling from Minneapolis. He said, are you the young man in youth work? I said, I am. He said, what can I do? No, he said, I've heard about you. And then he said, what can I do for you? And I took a deep breath and I said, do you need a youth director? Truth be known, I had never been a youth director. I'd never (laughs) taught a confirmation class. In fact, I'd never taught a Sunday school class. I was totally unqualified, in a sense, to be a youth director at a church. Pastor Jelton said, just a moment, please, and he covered up the phone with his, I guess, with his hand, and I could hear some talking going on in that room, and maybe half a minute later, he came back, and he said, yesterday morning in both services, I said, I'd like if some intercessors would join me at 10 o'clock tomorrow morning for a prayer meeting, we need to pray that God sent us a youth director and your phone call has interrupted our prayer meeting. Wow. And I thought to myself, I must be going to California. <laughs> and I did. Were you and, in Minnesota then? Yeah, I was in Minnesota. And so you were leading LYE from Minnesota. I was. Where at? Just in Min- the cities? Yeah, in the Twin Cities. Yeah. We actually leased a, an old Baptist Bible camp that had been purchased by Campus Crusade for Christ. We leased it from Campus Crusade for Christ, and we did our leadership and our training, our team training and all of that from this place on Lake Minnetonka, mm-hmm. on Cooks Bay in a community called Mound, Minnesota. Hmm. And, um, but, and that's where I was living at the time that I made this phone call and that I, a friend of mine and I then drove to California. Was it Roger? No, not your no, friend who's with no, you now. No, no, a guy by no a guy by the name of Paul Horgan, who remains today a very close friend of mine. And and what's important about that story is that God brought healing to me, not because I went to see a counselor. I didn't know to do that mm-hmm. back then. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't. I, I think if somebody had suggested it, I wouldn't have known what they were talking about going yeah. to a Christian counselor. And But there were people in that church, I think, God let them in on, I don't know, on enough stuff so that they prayed for their new youth director. Wow. And uh, and then I got to be friends with a member of the staff at Hollywood Presbyterian by the name of Dr. Don Williams, who would you would have to say Dr. Don Williams was also one of the founders of the Jesus Movement at, and uh, through the ministry at Hollywood Press. Um and Don, well, there were some people that loved me unconditionally, hmm. and I needed that. Um, I was a person that kept up a good face. 
I laughed a lot. I sang songs. I did a lot of speaking. But I kept people at arm's length. Mm. And if you really knew me, you probably wouldn't like me. I kind of. I didn't say that out loud. <laughs> but I kind of kept up that attitude. Mm-hmm. And that kind of started to break down. And, and that's when the healing began in my own life. Mm. So that's part of, part of my history. So then I was involved in... Then another ministry developed called Lutheran Youth Alive, and that was swept the West Coast, all the Western states, mm-hmm. like a wildfire. And we had, I'm the only Lutheran that ever invited Billy Graham to speak at a Lutheran event. What a bunch of idiots. They should have had him every time. I know, I know. We had <laughs> That's pretty cool, We though. had Corey Tenboom, we had Billy Graham, we had David Wilkerson. We at had, Lutheran Youth Alive? Uh, at Lutheran Youth Alive congresses, and and... Another word, I just wrote another word on my notes. We're going to talk about denominations in a little yeah. bit, too, because I want to probe that, because that's completely silly in my mind. But yeah, yeah. I understand how things were kind of segmented back yeah. then. But good for you for breaking through. So Lutheran Youth Alive. Yep. And then somehow you got connected with Bright through that? No, that was the Lutheran Youth Encounter. That's back back in the Minneapolis days. So Bill Bright is the, the was head, the founder of Campus Crusade Campus for Christ. Campus Crusade for Christ, and he had moved from Minnesota, this place where we were headquartered, actually, and he had moved to Arrowhead Springs. And I was planning, I, I had a gospel team in Scandinavia in 1964. I was on that. And we had an amazing ministry with young people in Sweden and Finland and Norway, and I went to the leaders within Lutheran evangelical ministries over there and said, how would you like a gospel team to come back next fall, which was the fall of 65? And so a team was there in the fall in Sweden in 65 and Finland in 65, and we were in schools. We presented the four spiritual laws, actually, in schools, in classrooms. I mean, we could do that back then. Awesome. And I was on one of those gospel teams. And before we went, I had been impacted. Now, I'm the Lutheran preacher's kid. But I was impacted, actually, at the University of Minnesota by the Campus Crusade for Christ Ministry at, hmm. the, at the University of Minnesota. I, I didn't sort of get saved there. I, I've been a Christian all my life. That, that wasn't mm-hmm. a decisional situation. I was going to ask you that question. Yeah, and but but... But when I heard this this presentation of the gospel that Bill Bright had come up with called the Four Spiritual Laws, frankly, it crystallized for me yeah. a lot of how do you present the claims of Christ to a non-believer without confusing the daylights out of them. I don't want to put you on the spot, but can you bust through them? Are they front of mind? God has a wonderful plan for your life. Um is one of the and Jesus Christ is is God's plan. Oh, no, the second the, the second law says man tries to find God mm-hmm. through and then all kinds of ways of you know money and fill the empty place in their life with with sex and drugs and money and accomplishments and being good and mm-hmm. all of that stuff. We used to say that being good included helping an old lady across the street, even if she didn't want to go. (laughs) You know, but being good is not going to bring me to a right relationship with Jesus Christ. Yeah. God solved that by sending Jesus Christ. And so the third principle has this arrow coming down from God to man. Yeah. 
and there's a cross there. It's the bridge over troubled waters in, in yeah. a very real, real sense. And then the f- fourth law gives two circles, one with me at the center of my life and all of the issues in my life in a mess kind of in that circle versus a circle where Jesus Christ is at the center and all of those things that were in my life as a non-believer are there, but they're centered around Jesus Christ, yeah. who's making sense out of sex and job and marriage and accomplishment accomplishments and, money and, and yeah. all of that. And so, so that helped crystallize. It did. It your crystallized faith. exactly. And so I went to Bill Bright and I said, "We were going to, with the gospel team to Sweden. We're going to, with the gospel team to Finland." I want to have those, that Four Spiritual Laws booklet in those languages. And they had not ever been put in any language other than English. And so the, I, I, I forwarded all of that to the folks in Sweden who had to do the translation. And then the folks in Finland, and they had to pick the right verses that said the right things that were mm-hmm. commensurate with the gospel presentation and the Four Spiritual Laws. And um, and it worked, and and we had them printed by the thousands in Swedish and Finnish, and used them all over the place. It was an amazing something, thing. Something small that you passed over and didn't even think about probably when you said it. So I, I told you that I was working with Campus Crusade, the Canadian arm, yeah. on a uh, digital strategy where we would put content, stories of of people who've been through depression, divorce, debt, cancer. You know, hundreds of issues, and they would write up a story about what that was like for them. And the story itself didn't present the gospel, but the story was meant to point the person and get them connected to an anonymous online mentor wow. who could talk to them about that. And then it's the mentor's job to just kind of gently listen and pray and respond, but not come with the gospel, you know, both barrels, you know, all guns blasting, but just kind of manage this relationship online and then share the gospel. Well, as we started to translate into other languages, one of the mistakes that was made, by the way, I should tell people, they can go to this website, issuesiface.com. Issuesiface.com, if you're struggling with anything, you can go find an anonymous online mentor. And and Dave, you wouldn't believe how many people are willing to have a deep, quick, self-disclosing conversation online anonymously when they wow. know it's going to be somebody on the other side of the world who's never going to see them or judge them. And, wow. and so it really opens the door to the gospel. But when we were translating to other languages, we learned very quickly, you've got to find natives yep. to do this translation. Yes. Yep. You can't just have someone who knows the language, no. who, who's a Westerner, because we're using phrases and words that are technically true and accurate, but aren't in the vernacular of the people on the other side. So you said that you guys found translators over in Sweden because uh, you can get yourself all kinds of not credible if you don't do that the right way. You're exactly right. Yeah. And married many, many young people in the 1960, in Sweden and Finland that came to faith. We had, oh gosh, we had an amazing ministry back then. And then it was... After that, that I emotionally kind of hit a wall um, and ended up, you know, with the story that I started with going to California and starting Lutheran Youth Alive. And um, and then my wife and I were married 
1975, I lived in L.A. for eight years, and she lived there the last of those eight years. And then we launched a music ministry that has taken us all around the world. Uh, What's your wife's name? Barbara. And did you get married, quote-unquote, later? Yeah. Oh, You're yeah. You're a little older. Oh, I was 31. Okay. Oh, yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah, in fact, there were people who just knew that nobody would ever catch up with me uh, <laughs> or that I would not slow down enough to get married to somebody you know, and and for the marriage to last, and it's lasted forty six years so Praise far. Yeah, so then we've then we launched a music ministry that has taken us all over America, and Asia, many many times to Australia, and, and so this ministry is the ministry that uh, led you to the position where you got in this plane crash, right? It is, but we're we're not going there yet. Okay, um, talk to me about uh, two things. One is so Homer Larson was the radio preacher for Christian Crusaders. Christian Crusaders is the ministry that is the umbrella that this podcast is under. He was the senior pastor at Nazareth Lutheran Church. You obviously ran around in Lutheran circles um, and still do. And and so my understanding is that you at least had some interaction with Homer. Talk to me about your, because we have some listeners that obviously still remember Homer. He's been gone for what, six years or something now, um, but had a huge impact kind of here locally and on this, through this ministry, Christian Crusaders. Uh, what were your interactions with Homer? Well, oh, Homer, my dad knew Homer. My dad was an evangelist, a Lutheran evangelist, and he was a pastor. My dad served churches, but he also traveled as an evangelist. And my dad and Homer Larson were singing off the same page theologically. Yeah, They were calling people to come to faith and back to faith and assurance of faith. And that was one of Homer Larson's, I think, drums that he beat was that you can have assurance of faith. You can know that you can know that you can know. And you're not going to go around saying, well, I'm doing the best I can. Yep. Or I'm I'm hoping for the best, or you know things like that. A lot of Lutherans say things like that because they never come to assurance of faith. And Homer used to show up at the Bible camp that I went to. It was called Lutheran Deeper Life Bible Camp up in the Twin City area, sponsored by Lutheran Evangelistic Movement. And while Homer was never kind of officially part of the Lutheran Evangelistic Movement ministry or organization, he was. One of these people, he was the Iowa person who did this great evangelism ministry, uh, you know, centered out of here at, at Nazareth and on the radio program. And uh, and we we were together, I suppose, half a dozen times or something mm-hmm. like that. And I was absolutely in awe of Homer Larson. And um, we talked several times on the phone, too, in later years when he was still pastor here. And uh, so I just, you know, when he went to heaven, he got met by a Homer Larson crowd of people, you know, not a Billy Graham crowd, but a Homer Larson crowd of people. People who's influenced. Oh, absolutely. And my dad got met by a Clifford Anderson crowd of people. Yeah. (laughs) He had helped come to faith and back to faith. To to like, uh, you use the word crystallize, you know, these guys that can clearly proclaim the gospel. Yeah. kind of cuts through all the muck and the mire and the confusion yep. and just crystallize it for people. Homer, Homer was one of those guys. Yes. That's great. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And, and yeah. Uh, so you have gone on, well, I'm actually I'm going to go a different direction, and then we're going to get to this. Um, 
want to talk about the Lutheran denomination. I was raised in it. I'm very familiar with it. You're very familiar with it. I am. Um, and a- actually, this some of the questions I have probably apply to most mainline denominations, Presbyterian, Methodist. Um, you know, you kind of triggered my thought down this line when you said that you were the first Lutheran to invite Billy Graham or David Wilkerson. Or, be, and, and the reason that no one else did is because they didn't fit their theological stripe. They no, didn't fit right. their denominational stripe. Yep. And I, I'm not so arrogant as to suggest that denominations never served a purpose. I think they may have. I mean, you go back to the Reformation and something needed to happen. And uh, Calvin, Luther, Zwingli, these guys were all used by God. We do need to remember that. They were used by God. They weren't just amazing in and of themselves. As some of their denominational followers today you know, tend to put these guys on a pedestal that they don't deserve to be on because all they were is instruments of God. There's obvious, obviously something needed to happen back then to put the word of God in people's hands and to correct some of the things that were going on in the church that were just straight out heretical. Uh, but you know, those guys kind of all had a little bit of a theological distinctive, and then you had denominations built around them. I mean, you even mentioned more recently the guy out in California basically had a denomination built around him, the Calvary Chapel and the Vineyard. And and so this stuff happens, and you can understand how it happens and why. And at the beginning, nobody is setting out to divide Christians, and nobody is setting out to uh, establish these practices and, and processes and bureaucracies that bog down the gospel. Nobody intends for that, but that's kind of the natural outpouring of a lot of this. And um, you and I have seen in the, in the Lutheran church, uh, some of the worst of that. And so you've been around for a while. What's your view of the denominational situation? It's interesting. Mainline denominations are falling apart. Mainline. When, when you say mainline, are main, you, Lutheran, Methodist, Presbyterian, United Church of Christ, Episcopal. Episcopal. Those are what are called mainline denominations, and they're falling apart. They're splitting. Uh, Methodism is splitting right now. Presbyterian, United Presbyterian Church is no longer a cohesive group. Um, And within the Episcopal Church, there are many, many churches, Episcopal dioceses that have left and have embraced something called Anglicanism, uh, and they've become uh, part of uh, a church structure that is sometimes based in Africa hmm. uh, because of the leadership and because of their, you know, their system of organizing, and the Episcopalians have to have a lot of organization going on. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and, and in the Lutheran church, there are there aren't as many Lutheran church bodies as there used to be. I mean, there used You're to be... You're talking about denominations, basically. Well, there used within. to be ethnic groups. Germans okay. would come over, and there were two or three or four kinds of German Lutherans, and two or three or four kinds of Norwegian Lutherans, each mm. with their Bible, each with their seminaries and colleges, mm-hmm. and their hymnody, and all of that. And then mergers started, of course, and people amalgamated, you know, one group with another, and sometimes it was not singing off the same page as another group. Um, My particular background 
has to do with synods that are predecessors of the ELCA, mm-hmm. Augustana Synod, and the ELC, Evangelical Lutheran Church. Now, they're part of what today is called the, 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 Evangel- the ELCA. My wife and Barb and I have for 35 years been a member of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. And, and, and within the LCMS, it's a mixed bag to this day, not of liberals, but of moderates and ultra-conservatives. Now, when we say liberal and conservative, we're talking not about politics, not no, about Republican-Democrat, but, but about interpreting Scripture. Exactly. Yeah, it has to do with morals. It has to do with interpreting Scripture, the veracity of Scripture. And the obviously, the ELCA has drifted... Um, so I went to a ELCA seminary for uh-huh. one year, and then I quit. And the reason I quit is because I could not believe how they were handling Scripture. It was there was a textual criticism run amok, is what I refer to it as. And I remember the straw that there were several things that that kind of grievances. I could have put up my own ninety five theses, um, but the the straw that broke the camel's back was I was sitting in a New Testament Gospels class one day. And the professor was talking about how these words that are supposedly attributed to Jesus, uh, it's the job of an interpreter and a preacher to decide which of these words that are attributed to Jesus he actually said, and which words were just kind of added by the gospel writers to quote-unquote prop up their propaganda, to to support the agenda that they're trying to push on the people. So in other words, the gospel writers... Matthew, for example, we're doing Matthew in the Bible Overview right now. That's a sister podcast to this, the Daily Dose Devotions. People can find that uh, on our website, christiancrusaders.org. But in Matthew, Matthew is trying to reach Jews with the gospel. He's trying to proclaim that Jesus is the Messiah. And Matthew would have been familiar with Old Testament prophecies. So Matthew is going to take some of Jesus' story, which actually historically did happen, and but then he's going to add some fictional stuff to kind of make some connections back to these Old Testament prophecies to kind of make the story feel to his readers like, man, this must actually be true, even though it's not rooted in historical accuracy. Well, that is absolute nonsense. Once you start slicing and dicing the Bible like that, how are you... There's no end to it. There isn't. And so how how do we know that Christ was risen? I mean, how do we know that wasn't added? And and like Paul says, if Christ didn't bodily rise, then we're the most to be pitied, and, and we might as well close up shop and go home and have fun because it's all over in 70 years or whatever. So, um, and then since then, you know, in the ELCA, the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America is the denomination I'm most familiar with because that was where that seminary was. And that was the church that I've been part of for a long time. Um, You know, there's all this sexual stuff going on in the 2000s. And then now we've got our first a transgender bishop that I saw was just hired somewhere within this denomination a couple years ago. The the bishop of the entire uh, denomination was interviewed by the Chicago Sun and said that uh, hell probably doesn't exist, but if it does, there's no one there. This is the leader of the church. And so people talk about, you know, the these uh, sexual kind of evolutions that the church has made to accept this and that and and i've always said that stuff is symptomatic the the cancer the sickness which is not unique to the elca it's all over mainline denominations is 
forsaking the word of God. Yeah. Right? Yeah, that's right. And that's and that's why the, <laughs> there's not there's not one of these so-called mainline denominational churches that are growing. Um, they're all dying. And the average age is like 55, 60, 65, and so years old, which says that given another 10 or 20 or 30 years, some mainline denominations will practically cease to exist. There are going to be a lot of empty churches. So a question I have for you is because you understand this, and you're still doing ministry in a lot of mainline denominations. You, quote, unquote, have the answer to the problem if you want to say it that way. Um, but you're going into these churches where their strategy for exists. I just preached in a church uh, a few weeks ago, and they're going to do a renovation of their worship center. And then you go to another church, and they're going to add a new worship band and get some more lights and a better sound system and make maybe a, a little more welcoming curb appeal to their church by by doing some landscaping. You know, you got all these, you get a new youth director. Uh, you got all these strategies to get these churches on a different, on an upward trajectory instead of falling. When the answer is very simple, just preach the word of God. Yeah, amen. And and the Lord will draw people yep. to Himself. You have that answer. I agree. You're, you're going into these yes. churches, and you're ministering. And how do you navigate that? Do you just kind of go in, play a nice concert, and leave, and say good luck, guys? Or do do you? Uh... Well, we're going the churches that. I go into are churches that I agree with (laughs) for the most part. I mean, for instance, and I, the pastor of the church, King of Kings in Cedar Rapids, where we'll be on Sunday evening, this coming Sunday evening, I would agree with, with their theology, with their approach, with their passion to reach lost people. Great. And I'm there to affirm their ministry, and I do that every opportunity I have to affirm yeah. right preaching and right teaching Amen. and right expository uh, deliverance of the uh, de- delivering of the gospel, and um, and um, I'm frankly the churches that are caving in and that are dying aren't the ones that invite us to their churches. <laughs> yeah. You know. That totally. So we're going we're going to we're rubbing shoulders with good guys whether they're in the Missouri Synod or they're in the some other branch of Lutheranism because that's yep. basically where God has called us. So that's there's great. LCMC Lutheran Congregations and Mission for Christ. North American Lutheran Church, mm-hmm. which is another new church body. And then there's a little synod called the Church of the Lutheran Brethren that's based in Fergus Falls, Minnesota. You're talking about your wife is from the LCMS, and you you're LCMS now, and and these are all like you said more conservative or these newer ones have yes. basically broken off the larger body because of all this nonsense that's been going on. So they're kind of reformational strands or correctional strands in a sense, right? Yeah, yeah. And every denomination has that, right? Or yeah. the main lines. Yes, yes, there's an element of it. Yeah. Um, sometimes that element has been overwhelmed by others Yeah, who have taken the, their denomination off, off the rails, so to speak, theologically. Yeah. And in, um, it's sad. In, into that reality, you've got a bunch of young people like my kids. My, my kids 
are they just not going to care about denomination at all? No, right. In, fa- in fact, um, church is totally different for them. I mean, just the way we do church. I was telling you that since coronavirus, you know, there's been a lot of online church, and and we've been doing some of that with some friends getting together and fellowshipping and, and watching some online stuff. And uh, just uh, an ongoing question about what's this all going to look like. I want to pivot to this retreat you have, Shepherd's Canyon Retreat, which is, these are my words, you might have to correct me. It's a retreat for burnout pastors or beaten down and abused pastors. We provide week-long counseling retreats for men and women in full-time ministry who are in various stages of burnout, stress, depression, compassion, fatigue, and conflicts of all kinds. And so the tie to what we were just talking about, and then I want to learn more about this retreat, is there anything that the way we're doing church today is lending itself to this kind of thing? Uh, lending itself to pastors and ministry people who are having all these issues? Yeah, I think for one thing, um, I know when my dad was a pastor and when Homer Larson was a pastor, pastors were held in high regard by everybody, whether they went to church or not. In fact, when they did surveys, they would put pastors near the top of admired people on the well, opposite end is Congress. Yeah, right. <laughs> and and that has deteriorated. That view of clergy and church leadership has wow. deteriorated uh, not only among non-church people, but among church people as well. Uh, one of the things I think that has contributed to pastors becoming burnt out and caving in and quitting the ministry is that their congregations have not cared for their pastors well at all. Hmm. They have not shown up in the sacristy behind the altar before the service starts and pastor, we're going to lay hands on you and pray for you hmm. as you lead this worship service. Now that's just a, a kind of a, an example of what lay, leap leaders can do. But one time I had a phone call from a lay leader from Texas and, and and this is a rare phone call where the, the man is saying, we, the leadership at our church want to know how can we do better in caring for our pastor? Hmm. And I said, oh, gosh. I said, I'd love to talk to people like you just, a lot. Just, just asking that question. Is <laughs> oh, something. I know. it's Oh, it's fantastic. And there are churches where people in the pew, especially leadership, elders and so forth, are caring for their pastor and the pastor knows it. Mm. where they're supporting that pastor and his or her family and and just the ministry that this person is carrying on. But that's not the case in a lot of places mm-hmm. where pastors are, they've, they're isolated. Some of it is self-inflicted mm-hmm. isolation yep. where they've cut themselves off from other people in the congregation. I had a phone call yesterday from a pastor from Ohio, and it was the most one of the most tragic stories I have ever, ever heard. Wow. And I've heard, we've had 600 people come to our counseling retreats. Mm-hmm. We've had a hundred, the 102nd retreat is in session right now. So I've been carrying on conversations with pastors, not only the last 12 years since I've established this ministry, but all my life yeah. in circulating all over the country and other countries with pastors. 
I had a call yesterday from a pastor in Ohio whose his story was, first of all, last Easter, his wife uh, filed for divorce. Mm. They have two young boys. Mm. So that's one whole tragic part of his story. The other part of the story is he's in a congregation that is, from all, everything he said, just completely dysfunctional hmm. and and toxic and and um and there there's an element in that congregation that are trying to get him to quit the mm-hmm. ministry mm-hmm. and and some of the things that he told me I have never even heard before of of the awful stuff that that somebody can do to try to discourage a pastor hmm. and, I mean my dad fell apart you know from some People in their books written about them, a book written about them called Clergy Killers. And that's what this pastor in Ohio has. He has, I don't know if it's one or two or a committee of them Mm -hmm. that are out to get him. And he is going to end up coming to one of our retreats, either the October or the November counseling retreat. And it's going to be a great experience for him. There might be people just listening right now who go, man, I need to find out more about this. So tell, tell, tell us the website or website. How, how often do you have these retreats or how do people get plugged in? Yeah. They, thanks for asking that. We have a retreat every month and I'm hoping that next year we can move that up to some months where we have two retreats a month. The retreats are small Eight clients is the most are the, the the most number that our counselors can handle. The retreats are one week long. They involve twenty three hours of counseling. They are led by two licensed Christian evangelical counselors, male and female, and then a retreat chaplain who's the pastor to the retreat. The retreats take place at a retreat center that we own called Standing Stones, and it's in Arizona. The website for the ministry is shepherdscanyonretreat.org. The website for the retreat center, which isn't quite as important as the ministry, is standingstonesaz, as in Arizona.org. But we've had broken people come to us. Nobody is coming to these retreats to, to, to sort of have an R&R experience where they're going to put up their feet for a week. This mm. is hard. This is heavy stuff. This is hard work. Mm. There, I believe there are 25 pastors in ministry today that came to us at a point of quitting the ministry. I know actually four pastors who came to us that were on the verge of suicide, but I didn't know that when wow. they came to us. Wow. In one Lutheran denomination not many years ago, four pastors committed suicide wow. in one year. And um, and if you go to ChristianPost.com, which is a non-denominational website, it's very interesting. I go there every every day, actually. You will see news. Some of it's very encouraging, and some of it's not very encouraging. And it, some of it has to do with pastors with moral failure. Some of them leaving their spouses some of them committing suicide hmm. from the pressures and the uh, unrealistic expectations of ministry. But anyway, I want to encourage anybody who's listening, take care of your pastor. Tell me this, and this ties back to a little bit what we were talking about before with some of the theological and doctrinal drift that we've seen in the church. Do you, do you get pastors there who, um, that, like in, in my mind, I think of a pastor who's like faithfully preaching the word, 
clearly proclaiming the gospel, and if he's getting beat up on his church, by his church, shame on his church. Yes. So you got a pastor who is trying to infuse a bunch of nonsense that he learned at some whacked-out seminary, and he's getting beat up by his church. That's a different situation. Yeah. So, so um, do you ever come across pastors coming down there who are like you, you mentioned self-inflicted? You know, one version of self-inflicted would be to not be faithful to God's word. Um, do you come across that or not so much? Okay. No, I think the what's bringing people to us is this spooky word burnout, mm-hmm. stress, depression. And then this very real thing that people don't talk about, compassion fatigue. I called a pastor one time and said, I'd like to schedule a concert at your church. And the pastor said to me, Dave, I've got three funerals this week. I can't even think about it. Mm -hmm. I told the pastor, at the end of this week, you're going to be overcome with what is called compassion fatigue. And I'm going to tell you right now, next Sunday, you should not be preaching. Hmm. You should get somebody else to preach. Your bucket will be empty. Mm-hmm. And there was just silence on the other end of the line because mm-hmm. I don't think anybody had ever told that pastor that next Sunday you ought to forget about preaching. It's his job to preach. Right. From hell or high water, I'm going to be up there preaching. And I said, nah, your bucket's going to be empty. And uh, I never did find out if he preached or not or got somebody else. I'd love to know that. That takes me back to a question I asked you before, just to ask it again. Um, One of the reasons, you know, I started out, I went to seminary, I ended up getting a seminary degree at a different seminary after I quit that first one. And people have asked me over the years, I've spent my life doing ministry, leading organizations. Matt, why aren't you a pastor? I like to preach. Um, I like to lead. Uh, God's blessed some of that. But I am not a pastor. And one of the reasons is, and I say this a little tongue-in-cheek and a little honestly, just seriously, I don't care about people that much. And the fact is, to this compassion fatigue thing, obviously I care about people. But when you're a pastor in a church, you got to care about people. You're on all the time. And so if I get asked to preach at a funeral of somebody who I'm close to and who I naturally have an affinity with and naturally have compassion for, this sounds absolutely terrible for me to say this, but you, that's more natural. But when you have to do it in every single case, I can't do that. Yeah. Um, this is back to the question about how we do church. Are we doing church in a way, like should pastors be forced to have compassion in every single situation and do every single funeral and counsel every single broken marriage Etc. Etc. Or is there a different way to organize this whole thing within the body of Christ that cuts down on some of this? Well, yeah, boy, you've raised a, a whole lot right there in that statement. If a pastor is a pastor of a small congregation, you've got to do it all. You've got to do it all. I mean, in the current and format, if, yeah. And if and 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 if you're a person. And I've met pastors like this who are narcissistic and who micromanage their church and they try to do it all. Messiah complex. Yep. That leads to burnout, let's get out of here, I'm done with this, and so forth. The best thing a pastor can do, of course, is to bring up lay leaders. Equip within the their, saints for ministry. To equip the saints in ministry. 
I know a pastor in El Paso, charismatic Missouri Synod Lutheran Church, who called me one day and said, Dave, I'm going to retire. Can you help me find a pastor to take my place? And I thought, oh, man, I don't know who could ever follow Dan Saddlemeyer as the pastor. But you know what Dan Saddlemeyer has done? He's raised up two men from that congregation, has sent them through theological training. Mm -hmm. One will lead the Hispanic ministry. One will lead the Anglo ministry. And Dan Saddlemeyer has done the right thing by raising up from within that congregation people to help a complete ministry that he doesn't have to try to do all by himself. And if um, in a congregation, if there can be lay people who step up to the plate and say, I can make calls on sick people. Mm -hmm. The pastor doesn't need to do that. I can make calls and give communion to... Uh, you know, homebound people, and I can do this, and that where the pastor is not trying to be all things to all people. Mm -hmm. That's a healthier situation than what you've just described. Yeah. Uh, And um, I know Homer's, back to Homer Larson, his whole thing was, my number one priority here is preaching God's word. You'd have had to fight him to get the pulpit on Sunday. Yeah. He he ain't sharing the pulpit with no one. Yeah, I believe that. Because (laughs) two things. One is, it's his, his responsibility to preach the word, and as the leader of the church, how best do you cast vision and equip the saints and get your people on board with what's going than to preach on Sunday? Yeah. The other stuff, I mean, he brought in a pastor of evangelism, a pastor of counseling, and the church was big enough to afford all that. A smaller church isn't, so you got to have lay people uh, stepping up. And what's, what's hilarious to me, of all people— that Lutherans have a hard time with this because Luther was the one who recaptured the priesthood of all believers. He did. Every one of us is a priest unto ourselves uh, because we don't need a go-between. We don't need some licensed, credentialed guy. Jesus Christ gives us access to the Father, and uh, yet Lutherans have a hard time with this... um, ordained versus lay versus, you know, who can do what. Have you read Eric Metaskis' book called Martin Luther? I, I haven't. I've heard so many good things about it, and oh, I need to. Yeah, you do. I've, I'm I'm two-thirds the way through the book. It's, it's a big not book. An, oh, it's not an easy read, but I've learned things about Martin Luther. Boy, I tell you, I, it would have been something to watch that man and his boldness Oh, my gosh. What You could identify with this as well. What I've learned is that there are a certain type of Lutheran pastors who love Martin Luther in history. Yeah. But when a modern-day Martin Luther shows up on the scene, yeah. they're not a big fan. I know. You're right. <laughs> You're right about He's that. He's definitely rocking the boat yeah. and uh, shaking things up. I just want to say, Matt, if I can, that if anybody listening knows a pastor— who is hurting uh, from from whatever I've just described, burnout, stress, depression, whatever the issue is, and it could be a combination of not all of the above, but some of the above. Um, Shepherd's Canyon Retreat is um, is one of the of only, there are only two ministries in the whole world, hmm. in America or anyplace else, that are doing this kind of counseling ministry that we're doing. One of them is called Marble Retreat in Marble, Colorado, and they've been doing this for 45 years. Wow. And then there's us. 
Wow. And so direct them to us. We have room at our retreats. Um, we can come up with scholarship funds if there are no other funds available. Mm-hmm. We ask for $2,500 for a single person, $3,500 for a couple. But um, we've, you know, there are donors that'll help make that possible so no one has ever turned away for the lack of funds. I was going to ask, so a uh, pastor and his wife could come oh, together. We, we twist every arm to make sure that a spouse comes. Okay, cool. I mean, and, and if they cannot come, we understand that. And as one is better than none. Mm-hmm. The other day, a pastor from uh, Oklahoma came, called me. Well, he first called me up. He said, my wife would really needs this retreat as much as I do, but she's nursing a six-month-old baby. Mm. And I said, you know, and I told the pastor, I said, we can handle that. We'll get a babysitter to babysit the, the baby Between while feedings. you're in sessions. <laughs> yeah. And so we did. That's we awesome. got a lady to come down from Minneapolis. She flew to Phoenix, and she was a sitting, babysitting the baby. That is awesome. Yeah, it was great. We've done that twice now. So we'll walk on water practically yeah. in order to um, get, you know, get, yeah, get people to come. So now this is what's interesting is I love everything we've talked about. And to me, this is really the story. I mean, the stuff that we've been talking about. But the thing that's maybe put you on people's radar more than any other thing that you've done is what happened on August 13th, 1993. So I want to tell that story. In fact, the guy who called me and said, hey, this guy's coming to town. And is there any need for a concert? Because he and Roger are going to be available on Friday night. And we couldn't get something worked out said he's got this crazy story about surviving a plane crash and that's what he talked about for the rest of our conversation and uh it's kind of like this is th- this story has taken you into several studios and, and to talk about where you've told this story oh uh, focus on the family has aired the program four times dr dobson's program did you family. get interviewed by him oh yeah yeah in the studio oh yeah cool and um and then we were at the headquarters and, and Dr. Dobson said, we're going to play this story until the second coming. <laughs> well, now he's not with Focus on the Family anymore, but he's with Family Talk. Did and you go do an interview with them? Yes, they've, they've done a program twice. Did they use the Focus one or did they take, bring yes, you back Yes, they out? did. They did. They, they used the one from Focus on the Family. And okay. Then we've been on TBN and CBN and Daystar, the television networks. And I'm excited to tell you this, and this is news to you. There is a movie that's going to be done about wow. Shepherd's Canyon Retreat. Okay. Not about the rescue story, but about Shepherd's Canyon okay, Retreat. Okay. And it's going to take stories, the actual stories that have come to us in our counseling ministry, and it's going to become not a documentary, but an actual full-fledged movie. Feature film. Feature film. And uh, we've always hoped that the rescue story, the Bering Sea story, a a movie script has been written about the story, but nobody's picked it up. Wow. But it's a very dramatic story. 20 of us uh, in four small planes went over to the Russian Far East to a community of 3,000 people that had never, ever heard the gospel. What's the name of the community? La Varentia. It's in the Russian Far East. Okay. Across the Bering Sea from Alaska. 
And uh, I mean, there was actually at no time was there a pastor, priest, missionary, evangelist that had ever gone to this community. The community of 3,000 people existed without one Bible in the entire community. Wow. And, and we heard about that. Missionary pilot called me up and said, Dave, can we put together a team and go over there and spread the gospel for a week? And I said, absolutely. So tw- actually four planes went, 20 people went. We brought food thousands of pounds of food, and we brought medicine for their clinic. We brought 500 illustrated Russian-language Bibles, or fabulous Bibles, and we spent a week evangelizing in this community. And um, then the day came for our plane, our little group of six... Can you spell Lavarentia? I'm looking on my computer L A V A R E N T I Y A. Lavarentia. Okay. I just want to see a map while you're talking. Yeah. It's it's north of the district capital. is called Providenia. And that's interesting because the word... Providence. Is there. Providence is there. And the synonym for the word providence is God. Yeah. And for all these years, even during Soviet times, there's been a town in the Soviet Union, now Russia, called Providenia, which is Providence. And it was... Named that because Vitras Bering, who was a Danish sea captain, was in a frightful storm, and he was, he said on the on the deck of the ship, he is said to have said, "God, if there's a God, save us." And the ship was was brought into a safe harbor, and the and the whole ship and the staff and the sailors were saved, and forever and ever since then since the 1700s, actually, that community has been called Providenia. Providence, God. That's exactly right. Amazing. And we had to go in and out of Providenia to get to the town of Lavrentia. And uh, on the way, uh, when the ministry was done there, we flew back to Providenia and then to a island in the middle of the Bering Sea called St. Lawrence Island. Then we were going to fly to Nome, refuel and head up to a Lutheran village, an Eskimo village at the Arctic Circle called Shishmaref. But on the way to Nome, the left engine quit at 7,000 feet and the right engine quit at 3,500 feet. What were you flying? Twin engine Piper Navajo. Okay. We fell three and a half thousand feet in three and a half minutes and we plowed into the ocean 90 miles an hour. We get out of the plane in a minute and a minute later the plane sank. It rests at the bottom of the Bering Sea. We ended wow. up, seven of us, in 41-degree water. You lose dexterity in five minutes. You lose consciousness in 30 minutes. You're dead. You're drowned. Uh, we had no life jackets or rafts, but inside the plane with us were 17 empty five-gallon gas cans we were bringing back from Russia to Alaska so they could be used again. And I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you if it wasn't for a five-gallon gas can to hang on to. How many were in your plane? Seven. We were spotted after we'd been in the water for 20 minutes. People can go to YouTube and write in three words, The Rescue Story, and you'll see a 58-minute documentary about this story. So a question. You said you were with three or four planes, right? There were four planes that went over there. So were you the back one, or they didn't notice that you were gone, or what? No, the three three planes stayed an extra day. 
Oh. But we had to leave in order to get to Nome, in order to refuel, in order to do the concert up at that Eskimo village. So you were flying solo? We I mean, were. Wow. Just our plane, yeah. And um, we were spotted after we'd been in water 20 minutes, and there's a big story to that, and I won't go into how we got spotted. But then 20 more minutes went by, so now it's 40 minutes before two helicopters came, people have interrupted me when I've been telling the story, and they said, did the Coast Guard come? And I said, nope, there's no Coast Guard in Nome, Alaska. Hmm. These are commercial helicopters. Aboard one helicopter was one passenger. Aboard the other one was two. And aboard one of those helicopters, the only equipment they brought with them were seven body bags. And so Jeez. then began 25 minutes of what has been called the most dramatic air-sea rescue in aviation history anywhere in the world ever. So I'm going to link that YouTube video, that 58-minute documentary, yep. in our show notes so people can get in our show notes and oh, see Oh, that's it. good. Go ahead. So they put the bellies of the helicopters into the swells of the ocean. And I've had rescue helicopter pilots tell me that that cannot be done. You can't put part of a helicopter into the ocean. What kind of swells are we talking about? Three to five feet. Okay. And I said, I know you can't do that, but that's exactly what we saw right before our eyes. Each of the seven rescues is just breathtaking. I mean, it's it, none of us, of the seven of us, could assist in being rescued. Were you conscious? Is, yes. Well, six of us were. Okay. The pilot was not conscious when he was rescued. Um, we could not assist in our rescue, which is the message of the cross. Hmm. There's nothing we could do to say, oh, I'm glad you're here. I'm going to climb on board. We were way too far gone for that. Mm, we were the recipients of mercy. What an illustration. It, it is. And, um, and the only place to put us down was that on the top of a mountain island two miles from us, the mountain island rises out of the ocean 760 feet. It's like a 60-story building, uninhabited island. But there had to be a place to put one of us down, two of us, three of us down, mm -hmm. four of us. Finally, all seven of us were up there. Cold. Oh, yes. Well, Oh, yeah, of course. We were cold because we'd been in 41-degree water, and we were sopping wet with salt water, of course. The air temperature was maybe 50 or something like okay. that. So Summer. it wasn't like, yeah, this was August, so we're not talking dead of winter or anything like that. And then they transported us to Nome, and doctors and nurses started working on us. But before we knew whether we were going to live or die, before we were spotted, the youngest guy in our group, he was our roadie, plugging in the sound system and so forth in Russia, hollered Bible verses twice. Hmm. And at one point he hollered, and I, didn't, I couldn't see Brian. He was drifted maybe a football field or two away from me. He hollered, God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in trouble. Hmm. And a little while after that, he hollered a verse that we sing in every concert we do. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Wow. And I remember thinking, that's the wrong verse. I mean, this is before we knew if we were going to live or die. You're out in the ocean hanging on a gas can. And we're hanging on to gas can, and he's hollering, this is the day. 
We're going to rejoice and be glad in it. I remember thinking, that's the wrong verse. It doesn't apply. And so the point I will make day after day, and I do make in our concerts, is that God is in the middle of every mess. God is in the middle of every overwhelming circumstance we could ever imagine. And Mm. for no one listening to this podcast, is it ever going to be the Bering Sea or the fiery furnace that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were in? Who's listening right now is somebody that's overwhelmed by the loss of a loved one or a disappointment or a heartbreak or 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 something that has brought you to a point where you're wondering what am I going to do now and God is there to say that his presence and his mercy and his grace and his power is in the middle of that situation mm. It's interesting to me, and I've never heard a sermon preached about it, that when the pre-incarnate showed up in the fiery furnace. Jesus shows up in the Old Testament before Jesus he was incarnate. Jesus shows up in the, yeah. He didn't blow out the fire. I've ah. never heard anybody preach about that. Wow. He didn't just go, whew, and, and blow out the fire. He could have done that. Right. Of course he could have done that. Wow. But Nebuchadnezzar, this crazy heathen king, is looking at, at these people and saying there's four of them. And they're walking around, mm-hmm. and it looks like they're not being touched by the fire at all. And so the message that I believe is there is that God is in the midst of the fiery furnaces in our lives. Mm. Whatever it is that overwhelms us, Amen. the presence of God is there to bring mercy and grace and healing. The other day... We had one of our retreats, and on the Friday night, maybe Saturday night, they showed this video of the rescue story from the Bering Sea to the clients at the retreat. And I came in after they had seen that video, and there were three couples there. There was a Presbyterian couple from North Carolina, there was a Lutheran couple from Arkansas, and there was a Baptist couple from Minnesota. The pastor, the Presbyterian guy, looked at me and said, Dave, if there hadn't been a rescue in the Bering Sea, there would not be a rescue going on at a retreat center in Arizona. Hmm. And I said, yep, and I grabbed the Kleenex. Yeah. One rescue has led to another. Many rescues. And, yeah, and, 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 and you know, when we <laughs> compare rescues... God doesn't compare rescues. Said, so, "Oh, this is a greater rescue than this rescue." If it's a if it's a, a rescue by God's grace, whether it's from a life of sin, mm-hmm. an addiction, pornography, mm-hmm. uh, a rescue from a broken relationship, or a rescue from a physical ailment. A rescue is a miraculous hand of God in our lives. And uh, I'm just as thrilled with the rescue of one kind as I am with another. Hmm. Because it's all God's grace. Let's go back to that rescue. So, And people can see this in the documentary, but just to kind of... So you're on the mountain, and then what? They got So every, we were, all we, seven? All seven of us were there. When's the unconscious we, guy come conscious? Uh, well, he went in out of consciousness. He was the pilot. 
And the only time I've ever slapped a person in the face in my entire life <laughs> was I, I slapped him in the face and I said, Dave, go wake up, wake up. And he'd open his eyes and he'd wake up a little bit and then his eyes would close and I thought, uh-oh, he's going out. And I'd slap his face a little bit. I said, Dave, <laughs> wake up. Is this in the water or No, the up at the top of the island. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, yeah, he was in really, really bad shape. So you can picture all this in your mind vividly? Yeah. Like right now? Yeah. So um, you're on this little island, so then they must have taken you one at a time or all no, at once no. somewhere they, else? No, they jammed us in to the, heli- the two helicopters. Our rescuers, there were three rescuers, two pilots, three rescuers, seven of us. They They put us in these two helicopters and flew us to Nome. Both of Nome's ambulances were there, plus a pickup and a, I don't know, a car or something. Took us probably just a mile to the hospital. How far of a flight was that from this little island to Nome? 20 minutes. And you said you were about two miles from the from the island from where you were in the water. Yeah. So if they don't have like winches and all the stuff we picture in our mind from yeah. the Coast Guard, yeah. how did they get you up out of the water? They put the bellies of the helicopters into the swells of the ocean, and the and the rescuers got out of the helicopter, stood on the skid, and they reached out to us. And drug in. And pulled us with almost supernatural strength into the helicopters. Um, from the time that the plane goes down, do you remember going down? Oh, my, yes. Do you, like, have PTSD about it? I did. Did you? Mm-hmm. In fact, one of the guys in our group had nightmares for six months, the same nightmare every single night. Just going down? Yep. So you're going down. You said 3,000 feet and... Three and a half minutes, three and a half thousand feet and three and a half minutes. We're having a Luther Baptocostal prayer meeting. That's when you get five Lutherans and two Baptists praying out loud at the same time. One person is praying, Lord, help us. Another one prayed, Lord, save us. A guy in the back prayed, Lord, I want to see my family again. And then right before we hit the water, seconds before we hit the water, 90 miles an hour, my wife prayed the most practical prayer. She prayed, Lord, you could start the engines, huh. which would have been quite a story to tell because the reason our plane went down was what the FAA calls fuel deprivation. We ran out of gas. How did that happen? It was... It was to be quite candid with you, it was pilot air. Oh, wow. It was a pilot who'd had 18,000 hours of flying experience. And for the first time in his life, he miscalculated what needs to be put together for distance, hmm. weight, winds, mm-hmm. and, um, and, and how much fuel it takes to, 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 to make that trip. But you know what? What's come out of this? Yeah. It's a great story. What's incredibly ironic to me is you went down because the fuel tank was empty. Yeah. And you were survived because the fuel tanks were empty. Yeah. You had you had empty tanks to hold on to. Yeah. That's exactly right. That's just crazy. Okay, yeah. so um it goes down, you hit at 90 miles an hour, which is fast and hard and yeah. <laughs> like water... hitting like hitting rocks. Yeah, people it's, it's people not... always say if I'm jumping in water it's not going to be that bad. But if you're hitting water that fast, I oh, mean, yeah. water's got a surface. Yeah, it's an amazing that the plane did not break up upon impact. So did you, did you just get thrown out? No. We hit the water. There are two exits. One was the regular exit, 
And um, one of the guys sitting toward the back pulled, you know, the lever and that door just fell open. And so most people went out that exit. My wife and I and one or two others went out the emergency exit over the wing. Mm-hmm. So we stood on the wing for a few seconds thinking maybe the plane, plane was going to float. It didn't. And the reason it didn't was because that other exit was open and, yeah. the, and the water was gushing into the plane. Yep. So that when my wife and I got out of the plane, we were up, not to our knees, but we were halfway up in our legs of, of, of our calves in water. The plane was already sinking. And so had these gas cans come out or did... How did you know where they were? Uh, it's interesting. Before we left Russia, one of the other pilots looked in our plane. He's standing on the tarmac. I'm seated in the seat. He said, hey, they've got some room in here. And I thought he meant people. So I hollered out the window trying to be Dave Anderson, the helpful person. And I said, no, all the <laughs> seats are full. Well, he didn't mean people. He meant gas cans. So we ended up with 10 of these gas cans in a storage area behind the back seat. And then we ended up with seven of them where I was holding one of these gas cans in my lap. One each. And I thought, seven of them. What, what am I going to do? I'm going to hold a gas can all the way back to Alaska. So then I looked down huh. and I put that gas can in the aisle of the plane and it it fit by about a quarter of an inch or half an inch. It just fit. Mm-hmm. So we had seven gas cans lined up in the aisle of the plane, and that's exactly where they needed to be. Cause that is we insane. We just needed to reach them and grab them. One guy got two gas cans, and one guy, the greedy guy in our group, got three gas cans. <laughs> and the one guy with two held on to them. He was standing straight up and down in the water, if you can picture a gas can by either by both shoulders and his ha- fingers were on these little wire handles mm-hmm. and when he was rescued i asked him several months later how long he could hold on he said 5 seconds he was seconds from letting go from letting those gas cans go he would have sunk like a rock and he would have drowned wow so, I mean, each of the seven of uh, the rescues is breathtaking. Were my there wife, any? Go ahead. My wife got rescued twice. She, the, the geophysical surveyor from Canada, who was in the smaller, the single-engine jet helicopter, was reaching out to her, put, trying to put her, his arm around an, her arm, Missed her two or three times. Hmm. Finally got his arm under her arm, but couldn't lift her up into the helicopter because Barbara was wearing a fiber-filled coat that when it's sopping wet weighs 50 pounds. Hmm. So the weight of her body, the weight of the coat, was too much to get her any further than putting her neck between his knees. Mm-hmm. And then he twisted his feet around her body, told the pilot take off, and she dangled by her neck for two and a half miles until they approached this mountain island with crashing waves and big boulders at the base of the island. And that's when he lost her, and she fell back into the ocean the second time. 
And then he saved her the second time. And the second time, Barb did not want to be saved. It's, wow. It's a, that's a big part of the story. Is that in this documentary? It is. Yeah. Yes. So, uh... And actually, he's in it. Because six years after this happened, Barb and I went to Toronto, Canada to take him and his wife to dinner. Hmm. And to appear on 100 Huntley Street. Yeah, I'm familiar with it. And which is broadcast all over Canada. Christian TV in Christian Canada. Christian TV in Canada. And um, <clears throat> so we're telling the story. And Dave Miles, the guy that saved Barb's life, was in the audience. So I got to the part of the story where I said that Barb has been saved, was saved twice by a Canadian who is the only Canadian in history to receive the American Medal of Heroism. Wow. And we'd like him, we'd like to introduce you to him. And one of the cameras focused on Dave Miles, and he stood up, and the audience, who did not know that who this guy was sitting among them, started to clap like mad. Hmm. And, of course, I grabbed the Kleenex. Yeah. And... Um, wow. So we introduced Dave Miles to Canada. So how did... Who saw you? If, if you're the only plane, how did anyone know a plane was down? Um... Back in Anchorage, there is an air traffic controller who heard our pilot say, we've lost an engine. Are you declaring an emergency? No, we're going to get to Nome with one engine. Nine and a half minutes later, he calls up the air traffic controllers in Anchorage and said, we're losing the other engine. Hmm. That air traffic controller said, can you declare your location? And and he was able to get longitude and latitude out. Hmm. And then the radio was dead and will never be used again. Wow. That air traffic controller looked on a screen and saw that there was a plane in the vicinity. Hmm. Now, this is when we could get lost in the weeds. You can fly an airplane VFR or IFR. IFR is when you're flying on instruments. Mm-hmm. And if an IFR indication is on the air traffic controller screen, the air traffic controller knows a lot about that flight, mm-hmm. who it is, how many people are on board, what the frequency is, and all of that. Mm-hmm. If you're flying VFR, the air traffic controller sees there's a dot in the screen, but there's no indication of any of that information. So you don't know who it is, how to get a hold of them, how many people are on board, or any of that. So the air traffic controller called the flight center in Nome and said, we see we have a plane in the vicinity of Sledge Island. That's the name of the island that we were on. Who is that? And the flight center in Nome said, well, that's Terry Day, Bering Air Flight 4666, and here's his frequency. So the air traffic controller who we've come to love. I was going to say, have you met this person? Oh, yes. Hmm. Uh, got a hold of that pilot and said, we think we lost a plane in the vicinity of Sludge Island. Did you see anything? And if people go and watch the documentary, they will hear that pilot say, eight minutes ago, we thought we saw the tail of a whale. It could have been the tail of a plane. Wow. And he did a U-turn in the sky circled Sledge Island, reported there was no wreckage, and went out to the area where they kind of sort of thought they saw some movement in the ocean. Mm -hmm. Circled for four minutes. They're running out of fuel. 
They're ready to get out of the circle and head to Nome when at the last possible second, the man sitting next to the pilot said, go around one more time. I think I saw something. Wow. And and then they report there are two people down there splashing in the water. Oh, no, we see three. No, we see four. We see five. Wow. Do you remember seeing the plane? Oh, my, yes. Oh, yeah. Were they down low? No, they're about 700 feet up. Wow. And then that pilot is circling up there and says on the radio, I'm running low on fuel. Somebody's got to take my place or these people will never be found. And a pilot was just leaving Nome at that moment, heard that, said, I've got 90 minutes of fuel, I'll come. So now there are two planes chasing each other in a circle up there, several hundred feet up. And of course, we're down in the water wondering what... What can you do? What, what, what's going to happen to us? And then the one plane left. So the other plane is there, and what he said is, I see them. So then the first guy left, mm-hmm. and then the flight center in Nome was really busy all this time listening to all this, and they were the ones that got these two helicopters to come and so the man that was still up there flying was able to say there's one person over there, and there's a one person over there, and there's another person over there. Mm. And then and then for 20, 25 minutes began the rescue. So how long was the longest person in the water? The longest person in the water was the youngest guy, and he was in the water for 70 minutes. He's the guy that hollered the Bible verses. Was he the one hanging on to the two? No. No. And did they just choose him last because that's the way it was, or they knew he was the youngest and had the best chance to live, or what? You're getting into too many details here. So when the first helicopter came, yeah, they came to the young guy. And they came down, and one of the two men in that helicopter had Brian's hand. Hmm. But Brian had been carrying on a 40-minute argument with the guy with the two cans. Mm-hmm. His name is Kerry. Mm-hmm. Kerry is a guy whose personality is the glass is half empty. Mm-hmm. And he said, I'm going to drown. I'm going to die. I'm never going to see my family again. And Brian kept saying, Kerry, don't think that. They're coming after us. I just know they're coming for us, which he was making up. Right, and he was, he was about, I don't know, twenty feet apart from Carrie, and he kept telling Carrie, "We're going to live through this, Carrie. Don't, don't give up, Carrie." Forty minutes, he's doing that. Well, so the helicopter came, and who did they come to? But the young guy, Brian. Yeah. So they had his hand, his left hand, and while they held his left hand, and the guy is going to try to pull him into the helicopter. With his right hand, he points to Carrie. Got to get that guy first. And the pilot looked at that and figured it out and gunned the engines, and the clasp of the hands came apart. Mm. And at that point, the rescuer said something you're not supposed to say in church. (laughs) And because, I mean, he was saying, I had him. And then they went over to Carrie 
and rescued Carrie absolutely in the nick of time. I mean, with the five seconds to go. And in the process, Brian was rescued last. Hmm. Was anyone injured, broken bones? No. Uh, Well, Carrie had two herniated discs when the plane hit the water 90 miles an hour Mm -hmm. from, from his seat being... Mm-hmm. taken out, out out the frame of the plane. Otherwise, we were black and blue. My wife, Barbara, suffered from uh, clinical depression, which was led, which was caused by the loss of serotonin in her brain. Mm. And she experienced panic attacks and clinical depression for a long time mm. uh, and migraines. Um, five of us came out rather unscathed. Hmm. Black and blue marks went away. Two in our group were, it was longer. The the healing Mm -hmm. took took longer. I was going to ask, so obviously this has been a inspiration for your ministry. I mean, it's kind of like you get saved from that. I mean, I've been spared from much lesser things. And you're just like, man, the Lord wants me serving his kingdom. That's right. And so that's like a we're going to put the pedal to the floor and we're going to do this. And it's obviously that's ramped your ministry up. You're already doing stuff before that, yep. but you're on another level. Um, is that the case with others? Are they in ministry still, or are they doing stuff living for the Lord and, and living for the Lord? Yeah. One of them is a music minister. One of them is a coordinator of, of ministry of group homes for disabled people. The young guy who's not as young anymore. And, uh, um, the pilot is with the Lord. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, um, we're the only people in full-time ministry, Barb mm-hmm. and I, of the seven of us that were in that plane. This kind of an event, I mean, you're kind of connected together forever, yes, right? forever. And so do you, do you have, like you said, you were just at a 28th anniversary Thing. And on that day, on the 28th anniversary, I made the phone calls that I have made for 28 years mm-hmm. to all the rescuers. Mm. I mean, so do you ever, are you ever in the same room together at the same time? Not for years. Not for many years, no. Because we're scattered all over the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, one person's in Alaska, one person's in the Twin Cities, one person's in St. Louis. Uh, Barb and I are in Phoenix. And, uh, yeah, we're one time Brian, the young guy, came to Phoenix on a weekend where I was invited to speak to the Yuma prayer breakfast at 6 o'clock in the morning for a 1,000 people. Mm-hmm. Brian and I were flown to Yuma in a private plane. Oh. And, uh, and then 6 o'clock the next morning, I... Uh, I'm gonna. I'm on a big stage talking to a thousand people. I asked Brian if he'd sit in the middle of the audience. Mm-hmm. So I'm telling this story, and I referenced the name Brian a couple of three times. And when I got to the end of the story, and I said the young man by the name of Brian hollered a Bible verse. The first verse he hollered was, and at that second, Brian stood up in the middle of the audience. Wow. And hollered, God is our refuge, our strength, a very present help in trouble. Wow. And he sat down. And people in the audience were going, who is that guy? You know, what, who, 
what's what's that all about? Mm. A, a moment later, I said, and then the other verse that he hollered was, and then at that, at that moment, Brian stood up again, and he hollered, this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And I looked at the audience, and I said, would you like to meet Brian? Wow. And a thousand, there were tears Powerful. all over the place of a thousand people. I've written a book about this, and I had a little table with a stack of these books. It was funny. Some people came to me to get an autograph, and I could talk to them about the book. The majority of the people lined up to talk to Brian. <laughs> it was really a cool... It What's was the name a, of the book? The Rescue. Can it be found on... I mean, is it still available? Oh, yeah. The I Rescue mean, by Dave Anderson. Yep. Yeah, on Amazon or yeah, it and now it's just now going to be distributed by Amazon. Just it, it not quite yet, but if people go to well, if they call our office, <laughs> we'll send them the book at the retreat. Uh, no, Shepherd's Canyon. I'll give you the number. It's four eight zero eight three eight eighty five hundred is our is our um, phone number for our music ministry and the rescue story. And the, the website for that aspect of our ministry is very simple, thefellowship.com. Thefellowship.com. The, the rescue book is there. The video is there. And so, I've published a million songbooks, and a couple of the songbooks are listed there too. We're going to wrap this up, but one of the questions I have just about how this event, this rescue, played into the trajectory of your ministry. Obviously, you're leading ministries. You're out in California with the Jesus Movement. You're having Bill Bright and Billy Graham and and all these guys. So, I mean, you're kind of already doing some big things. Did, did this bump your profile up? Sure. Sure. Yeah. And a lot of people heard about this story, mm-hmm. and a name was out there more mm-hmm. because of that. And, but spiritually speaking, I mean, there was more PR stuff because of this plane crash and the rescue story. But spiritually speaking, it, we look back on it and say, if God could do that, what would prevent God from doing other great miracles of healing, for instance, at this retreat center and... Mm-hmm. Um, so and, it's been more of a inspiration to you. Yes, You've seen God yes, work in yes. an amazing way, yeah. and so your your doubt that God can do anything yeah. has been severely diminished. Yeah. I mean, He can do whatever He wants, yeah. and He would even do it through you. There was a seminary class that was in England visiting the home of Charles Wesley. Mm-hmm. Have you heard the story? No. And uh, the person who was leading this group, showed the people uh, his books and where he ate and where he slept. And then they went around the bed and they looked down and there were two bare marks in the carpet. And that's where Charles Wesley knelt in prayer. Hmm. And so they were just amazed. They were saying, you know, how can a person pray so long that you would actually wear out the carpet with your knees? Hmm. When they were getting going, and there was one person 
not in the van. And so the leader went back, went upstairs and found that person kneeling and said, we need to go now. And that person said, Lord, do it again. And that young man's name was Billy Graham. Hmm. Wow. And so when I look and I know that God is capable of doing miracles and changing people's lives, and I look at the rescue story in the Bering Sea, and I say, Lord, do it again. Hmm. Change lives and bring healing to people. And, and that's what has really propelled this, you know, the Shepherd's Canyon retreat mm-hmm. ministry. And, um, and as I've referenced a little earlier, you know, it's, 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 there's no point in comparing miracles. Mm-hmm. You know, okay, seven people survived what could not be survived in the Bering Sea. Mm-hmm. Big deal. Mm. But you get a person like the pastor from the Twin Cities that came to a retreat ready to quit the ministry, quit his marriage, and quit life. Mm-hmm. And for all of that to have changed in one week, that's as big a deal as seven people surviving a plane crash in the Bering Sea. Mm. That's good stuff. Dave, would you close us in prayer well, along the lines of what you've just been saying? Yeah, Father, again. Father we, we just pray, if there's one person sitting listening to this, driving, listening, or something, who is overwhelmed with circumstances in their life. I'm asking you, Lord, to intervene with the power of your grace and your mercy and your healing to bring hope and healing to this person's life, to their family life, to their marriage life, to their ministry life. So, Lord, we just thank you for your great miracle-working power. Thank you for the people that are at the retreat right now. We're asking for healing and hope for those people. Their lives will be turned around and renewed. And uh, we just thank you for the opportunity to serve you in various ways. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks, Dave. Yep. The CC Podcast is part of Christian Crusaders Radio and Internet Ministry, started in 1936 and is one of America's longest-running radio ministries. We are 100% donor-funded, and donations to our ministry are 100% tax-deductible. So if you are encouraged, challenged, or inspired by today's conversation, please consider making a donation on our website, christiancrusaders.org, or mail a check to Christian Crusaders, 7401 University Avenue, Cedar Falls, Iowa, 50613. In addition to our other podcasts, which I mentioned at the front of this episode, I want to mention two of our other ministry partners worth checking out. First, the Cedar Falls Bible Conference, equipping believers with the truth of God's Word since 1922. Visit cedarfallsbibleconference.com for free access to previous conference content or for more information about upcoming events. Second is Power to Change Digital Strategies, an online ministry partnering volunteer Christian mentors with people around the world searching the internet for answers. If you or someone you know could benefit from an anonymous online conversation with a caring Christian adult, go to issuesiface.com. Or if you would like to be a volunteer Christian mentor, please visit p2cdigital.com. That's the letter P, the number two, and the letter C, digital.com. 
see our episode notes for details and links. And remember to subscribe, leave a five-star rating, and write a review. God's richest blessings to you. And thanks again for listening.